we, uh, we're in the book of Philippians. We've been there for a little bit of time. And we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 today. And as I always do, I'll encourage you to uh, open your Bible and turn there. Well, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Hear the Word of our God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak today, nothing of significance will be spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the very first word in our passage today is therefore. And you may have heard this before, but anytime you see that word, therefore, you ask the question, What's the therefore? Therefore. And it points us back to what we talked about last week. Last week we looked at one of the mountaintop scriptures. We saw Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. We saw Jesus eternal, preexistent, God Almighty in heaven, yet he lowers himself, taking on flesh, becoming a man. Becoming a servant, dying, even death as a criminal on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that at every knee shall bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is glorious. And that's what we saw last week. But Paul is giving us that for a reason. In light of Christ's humiliation, Christ went low. He humbled himself. You will never be as high as Jesus, and you can never go as low as he went either. So in light of Jesus' humiliation, you, church, you, body of Christ, you, Philippians, humble yourself. So that's what the therefore is there for. It points us back. Jesus, we saw last week, he's fully God, he's fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And the Bible has some paradoxes. By the word paradox, I mean something that seems like a contradiction. Both things can't be true at once. Yet the Bible has some of those. Scottish theologian John Murray said this, Every major doctrine in the New Testament there is an apparent paradox which cannot 
in and of itself be resolved in the mind of man. We see, we're going to see another paradox today. And sometimes they're hard to resolve. But just because our finite minds can't grasp a full understanding of God, doesn't mean that it's not true. Oh, God reveals himself in his word and we can understand him. We can know him. He's near. He's close. Yet there are aspects of the nature of God that our finite minds will struggle with. And yet when God's word says it's true, we can trust it. So he says, therefore, my beloved. I love that he calls the Philippians his beloved. Paul is such a pastoral man. He loves this church in Philippi. He cares for the church. And he's going to express that to them. Because what he's about to do is give them a bit of a corrective. For those of you who are parents, you know how that is. You love your children. Just because your children do something that disappoints you doesn't stop your love for them. But you've got to correct them. So sometimes you'll come to them and say, I love you. And listen, I know you usually obey. I know you want to do what's right. But what you've done here, it's not for your own good. It may seem like it, but it's going to hurt and harm you. And I want to tell you, go the other direction. A loving parent will correct their children. It's the unloving parent who lets them do whatever, who lets their sin nature run amok. No, out of love we do that. And that's what Paul is doing. He loves this church. And he says, be loved as you have always obeyed. That's a beautiful statement. Church in Philippi is an obedient, glorious, wonderful church. They're not perfect, but they're obeying. And let me tell you, God calls us to obedience. Now, some people don't like that because they're afraid it turns into a works-based Christianity. Like, I've got to obey, and if not, God's... No. God made you. He created you, and He knows how He created you. And for you to live in the freedom that you have in Christ, you need to live in obedience. Living in obedience is true freedom. To live outside of obedience is to live in slavery to sin. And God doesn't want us living in slavery to sin. It will dominate our lives and tear us apart. So he says, not only have you obeyed me in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, again, parents, you like it when your children obey in your presence. That's good. That's encouraging. But when that teacher, maybe that youth pastor, maybe a babysitter, maybe somebody else, they tell you, they say, your child obeyed even when you weren't around. Listen to what they said. Listen to what they did. Few things will bring greater delight to a heart of a parent than to hear that their child is doing well and obeying even in the absence of the parent, and that's what Paul is saying. You've been obedient, church, and that's a beautiful, glorious thing. But then he's going to call them to something, and it's a rather difficult part of this passage that can be easily misinterpreted. Listen, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. You go work it out. Now, for most of us, 
There should be some alarms going off going, this verse can't mean what I think it means when I first hear it. Go work out your salvation. It's not saying work for your salvation. It's about working it out. You see, anytime you see a verse of Scripture that appears a little strange, a little odd, and sometimes we'll see Scriptures will be like, that can't mean what I think it means. Often that's the Holy Spirit in you speaking, and you need to listen. Because there's been many false doctrines, many erroneous movements that have started with someone taking a passage of Scripture out of context. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 21, 22, it says, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. If that's like your verse, you go around telling everybody that if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask in prayer. All I've got to do is ask for it, and I'm going to get it and believe. Does that sound right? Well, something inside of us, if you've been a student of the Word, if you've been walking with the Lord any length of time, and in His Word, and being fed solid meat, you should know that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. Because see, here's what prayer does. Prayer takes your heart and mind and lines it up with God. Prayer is not you going, God, get on Steve's agenda. God, get on my agenda. God, you do what I want. No prayer is me going, God, line me up, my heart and mind and will more with you. And the more we do it, our prayer life is going to look more like what Jesus prayed. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. That's what we're going to be praying for. We're not going to be saying, God, I want to, you to give me all these material blessings. I want you to give me health, all these things. We can pray for that, but God doesn't promise he's going to give us that. No, as we believe upon the Lord, we desire what he desires. And this verse appears to say we've got to work. You want to be saved? Work. Every false religious belief system no matter what title it goes by, has one thing in common. Works. You've got to work. You've got to be good enough. You've got to do enough. You've got to work hard enough. And many in this room, you've grown up with that. You grew up in a church system, or maybe not a church, maybe a different belief system, where you were told, if you want to please God, you better do this. And you were afraid. If I don't do this, God's going to get me. If I don't come and pray enough, if I don't bow enough, whatever it is, if I don't do it enough, then I'm not going to please God. And that's not living in the fullness of Christ. That's living in bondage and slavery. Going, am I good enough? God, am I I going to be able to, to make it? Am I going to be okay? And fear is a huge motivator. Some of you have grown up and fear was the motivation of your pursuing God. You were afraid, so you pursued Him. It wasn't love, it was fear. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to make a mistake. I want to get to heaven, so I've got to work hard. I tell you, you could take this verse out of context and you could teach that false belief. You see, Christianity is glorious. 
There's no other belief system like it on earth because it's the one true religion. All other religion is false outside of Christianity. And Christianity is unique because it teaches we are saved by grace through faith. You do nothing. Isn't that glorious? I don't have to work hard enough. Jesus worked hard enough. Jesus did it. He paid the price. And when I trust him, I'm in him and I'm good. I don't have to worry. I'm secure. Now it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not speaking of working for your salvation. No, out of your salvation works flow. When you are saved, what will follow is works. When a person is alive in Christ, they show signs of life. That's what flows. And Paul is calling the church to look at Jesus going low, being humble, and be obedient. And because they're saved, because they've trusted the gospel, because of Jesus, works flow, works follow. Don't get those out of order. But he says it's with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Are we to have a, a, a terrifying fear of God? Well, I'll tell you, for those who don't know Jesus, it's absolutely... You should have a fear, terror. But for us who know Jesus, we don't, we're not terrified of God. No, our fear and trembling is different. If you can think of maybe a teacher you had when you grew up that you loved, maybe a grandparent that you admired so greatly, maybe, maybe a mentor, a, a, a youth leader, someone that you just said, no matter what, I don't want to disappoint them. I want them to be pleased with me. I want to do things that honor them. I don't want them to come to me and say these words. I'm disappointed in you. We don't want to hear that. No, there's a, a, a fear and trembling that, that we want to honor God and glorify Him. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to hear, I wasted my life. Though I knew Christ, I chased and pursued the trivial. I chased and pursued the temporal. That's how I spent my life. Not on the eternal. No, work out of your salvation. It's out of the gospel. The gospel is the foundation from which we live, and we live out of that. Work it out with fear and trembling, awe and amazement for God. Now notice this. Here's where the paradox comes in. We're talking about an aspect of what we call sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word we don't always use a lot, but basically what it means, it's a, a, a theological term that means the process by which God makes you like Jesus. The process by which you become holy, more Christ-like. That's sanctification. And here he's saying, you, you work out, you work out of your salvation. You go do it. Here's the paradox, though. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you. God does it. You go do it. God does it. How are you sanctified? 100% God? How are you sanctified? You've got to go do it? Paradox. Seeming contradiction. You're not going to grow in your faith in Christ's likeness if you're not living a disciplined life where you're pursuing Jesus Christ and being obedient to Him and seeking Him in His Word and in prayer. 
But you're not going to grow in your faith if God doesn't do all of it in you. It's all up to Him. Again, it seems contradictory. It's just what Scripture teaches. For it's God. It's God. It's God who works in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I've been reading the biography of a a man named C.T. Studd. He was a... um, in the 1800s, he was known as the best cricket player in England. Some said he was the best cricket player on earth. He had two brothers. There was the three stud boys, and they took England, and they beat every other nation on earth in cricket. C.T. Studd heard the preaching of D.L. Moody, and God wrecked his life for his glory. Totally transformed C.T. Studd. He left cricket, and he went and became a missionary first in China, then in India, then here in Africa. And he took the discipline it took to be the best cricket player on earth and pursued the Lord with that. And one night, him and a friend, they were in this room, and they were staying, and it was cold. They were in pain. It was so cold. And his friend woke up because it was so cold, and he looked over, and he saw C.T. Studd sitting in the corner of his bed, reading the Bible by candlelight. And he asked him what was up. Here are the words that C.T. Studd said to him. I felt something was wrong in my relation to the Lord. And so I am reading through the entire New Testament to check all the commands to me in case I've unwittedly violated any of them. That's pursuing the Lord. That's discipline. That's seeking sanctification. But he can't do it. Only God can. You can't become God holy. Only God can make you holy. You can't become like Christ. Only God can make you like Christ. But you've got to pursue it. Be disciplined. Seek after it. And that's what Paul's calling this church to. And now... He's going to give them a command in verse 14. Listen to this. Do all things. Don't miss that. This doesn't say do some things. This is complete. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Everything you do. No grumbling. No disputing. That's what we're called to. Remember in this church in Philippi, there's a couple of women And they're not getting along. And because they don't get along, it's spreading throughout the church, causing division. And Paul's saying, don't be grumbling. Do all things without grumbling, without disputing. Oh, and we often look at certain sins as not that significant. We excuse them. I do it in my life. Listen to what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8 through 11. He says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell dead in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Paul is speaking to the church, and he's recalling in the Old Testament these sinful acts 
that caused God's wrath and anger to burn to the point that he said, I'm bringing these people home. I'm taking these people out. Sexual morality. 23,000 fell dead. To fame in the name of Christ here it says, when they put the serpent and they were bitten and destroyed by serpents. Those two sound very serious. Grumbling. Grumbling. God took the grumblers out. And Paul says, this is an example to us, church. This is to be instruction to us. We easily excuse grumbling. It's been a problem since the beginning. Adam in that garden eats of the fruit of the tree, and God says, what have you done, Adam? Adam goes, that woman that you gave to me, it's your fault, God. You did it, God. Cain kills his brother, and God, in mercy, says, Cain, you're, you're banished, but you get to live. And Cain goes, it's too much that I can't bear it all. Grumbling. In Exodus, they're in slavery to the Egyptians, and God sets them free, and they are racing to the Red Sea, and they come up on the Red Sea. These people have seen God work miracles through ten different plagues. They've seen God deliver them, and here comes the Egyptian army, and in Exodus chapter 14, they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? They were in slavery, and now they're walking in freedom. And they're grumbling. Well, God opens up the Red Sea, and they march to the other side, and Moses sings this glorious song. You would think all would be well. But in chapter 15, verse 23, when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Grumbling. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Exodus. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved onto the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandments of the Lord, they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, saying, give us some water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? But he put the Lord to the test. But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God had delivered them through ten plagues. He had parted the Red Sea. And they're worried about if God's going to provide for their physical needs. God's going to take care of you, but they're grumbling. It's not done when we want it. We need it now. We're upset. Then they're going to go take the promised land. God had a plan. We're going straight to the promised land. You've got to march this journey straight to the promised land. In Numbers 11, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about the misfortunes, and the Lord heard it. His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Grumble 
grumble, grumble, and the Lord finally said, you're done. It's harsh. We look at grumbling as being no big deal. Scripture looks at it differently. Numbers 14, 36 and 37. The men whom Moses sent out to spy the land, he sent out 12 spies. They returned and made the congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report. And it's only Joshua and Caleb that bring a good report. 12 spies go out, one for each tribe. 10 of them come back and say, too difficult, too hard. Two come back and say, we can do it. Listen, the majority, it's not always right. And grumbling and complaining, it spread. Know this, grumbling and complaining is like a cancer. It spreads. It spreads easily and fast. It's easily transmissible. You start grumbling and you're passing it on. And it's going to roll, 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 roll. Eventually God says, enough. That's what he's doing here. In Numbers 16, On the next day all the congregation and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. They don't even recognize their sin. Grumbling's what caused this, not Moses. Moses put a stop to it by crying out to God. Even seeing the consequence of their sin bringing death doesn't stop their grumbling. They grumble and grumble and grumble. It's a nasty sin, yet it's one we overlook. The Bible's full of complainers. Grumbling and complaining shows a lack of faith. It shows a deep-seated spiritual problem. You know, sometimes we'll excuse our grumbling. It's just who I am. You know, I just keep things real. I, I, I like to, to be honest. I just need to vent sometimes. I, I just need to get things off my mind, off my chest. Grumbling. We try to excuse it. We have plenty to grumble about, don't we? Anybody waited in the gas lines lately? We can grumble. Anybody seen the price of food going up? We can grumble. Anybody seen the confusion and the challenges of politics? our health issues, COVID, and not only COVID, but all the implications. People are dying, and we're having to, to adjust to make big adjustments in life. It's hard. Traffic jams, theft. There's plenty of things to grumble about. You know what Paul said in Thessalonians? Give thanks in all circumstances. He says, in, here he says, in all things we don't grumble. Do all things without grumbling. Here's what you do, in all things give thanks. Waiting in that line to get gas. God, thank you that I haven't have a car. Thank you that I haven't have the time to wait. Thank you that there's gas up there. Thank you that this helps me get around. Thank you for the time to talk to you, to pray to you, to cry out to you. God, I don't like COVID, but thank you that you remind us that this world isn't our home. That we're fragile. We're fragile people. We're not so tough. Disease can take us out. Thank you for that reminder. I'm not secure here on earth. I'm only secure in your arms, in heaven, in glory, in Christ. Thank you, Lord. 
Give thanks in all circumstances. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble against one another. Don't start complaining about other people. It's a bad's. It brings destruction with it and disunity. And that's what's happening in this church in Philippi. Grumbling, complaining, disunity. Here's the heart of it. Lamentations 3.39 gets to the absolute heart of this issue. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? What do we have to complain about? Really, what do, what do we have to complain about? We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb through Jesus Christ. We are saved. We're secure in Him. You and I, we deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God, yet we've been redeemed by Him. If you've trusted Christ, that's the reality of who you are. What do you have to complain about? We have no justified complaints. Now, as I say that, I do want to have a caution. I'm not saying, and Scripture doesn't say, that you don't need to seek godly counsel. Some things in life are really hard, and you need to go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, help me process this. Help me walk through this. Speak into this. That's different from grumbling and complaining. You may be struggling, waiting in that car line so bad, it's got you frustrated, and you need to go to a brother in Christ and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray for me? Will you help me to have more patience? That's different than grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining does not mean you don't process things, that you don't seek wise counsel, that you don't talk about things, that you don't deal with things. Don't misunderstand that. But when we're dealing with things, we've got to ask ourselves, who am I talking to about this? Is it a wise, godly counselor who can help me? Somebody that can speak into my life, a brother or sister in Christ, who I know seeks his word? Is it someone who's spiritually mature enough that they're not going to take this and go spread it as grumbling and complaining? We've got to be able to ask those things. So don't hear me saying it all. When you're struggling, just shove it down, pretend like it's not there, and put on a smile. No. I'm saying seek the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. I think as we start to give thanks to Him, what happens is those complaints begin to lessen. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors there is safety. Church, we need one another. You need people that you can talk to. But don't blur the line and fall into grumbling and complaining and seeing that spread. That's what's happening in this church in Philippi. Now in verse 15, we're going to see three impacts of grumbling and complaining. This is toxic. It's unhealthy. It's destructive. In verse 15, he says, that you may be blameless and innocent. Grumbling and complaining is self-abuse. It's destroying yourself. It hurts you. It begins to damage you. No, we're designed to give thanks to God. We're designed to count our blessings, but grumbling and complaining is the opposite. It's looking at this world and going, gosh, this world sure is broken. Don't expect to be able to find 
what you're looking for in this world. It's broken and fallen. Until Jesus returns, it's going to be that way. Grumbling and complaining. It's obvious this world's broken. It's obvious people are sinful. People are struggling. Don't expect everybody to be perfect. They're not. They're sinful. Don't expect Christians to always behave like Christians. God's sanctifying us all. And there's some areas we all need growth and we all have blind spots. Now, we should pursue in our lives to live as Christ-like as possible. But don't be surprised when you see a brother or sister in Christ still struggling. Pray for them and realize that they're caught in bondage and slavery and they're confused and they're deceived and they need the light turned on. It's destructive to yourself grumbling and complaining. As the first person that hurts is you. Next, he says, we're children of God. That makes it clear he's speaking to Christians. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. We're in a crooked, twisted generation. Every generation's been that way. That's why I was saying it shouldn't surprise you that the world behaves godless. Shouldn't be a surprise. But we are to shine like lights. We are lights in the world. That's who we're to be when we go out. We're to be lights in this world. So the second that's impacted by your grumbling and complaining is the non-believer. It destroys your testimony. It annihilates it when you're a grumbler or a complainer. Why would I want to come and follow the God you worship when all you do is complain and grumble all the time? If your God was so satisfying, so great and good, wouldn't you stop complaining? It's a terrible testimony. I heard a true story about a pastor in a region of the United States called Appalachia. I, didn't grow, I grew up pretty close to Appalachia, and my first church that I worked in was in that region. Well, the pastor had heard that the deacon, one of the deacons, had been grumbling about him. So in the middle of the sermon, the pastor begins to call out the deacon who's grumbling against him. And that deacon, he doesn't take it lightly. He stands up and calls out the pastor. And the pastor says, oh yeah, and the deacon goes, oh yeah, and they're going back and forth. And finally the pastor goes, do you want to take this outside? Now, I don't know what that means where you come from, but let me just tell you what it means where I come from. That means we're going to go outside, we're putting up fists, and this thing's going to be a physical fight. And that's exactly what happened. This pastor and this deacon went out in the parking lot and got into a fist fight, and the church joined in, taking sides. The police had to come in to stop the fight of the church people. Well, the deacon and the pastor, they went before a judge. He was a Jewish judge. And this judge looked at them and said, I thought you were to be people who loved like Jesus. I thought, that, I thought that's what defined Christians. You were the people who love." What are y'all doing? And the judge ordered a cop be put in the back of that church to keep peace. Now, imagine this. What if the pastor, after that verdict, went to the judge and said, You know what? Judge, you're a Jewish man. Let me tell you about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's wonderful. He's glorious. He's changed my life. You need him. What do you think that judge would do? You have no ability to speak. Grumbling and complaining crushes your witness. 
It destroys it. See, Paul's writing a letter of joy. Our joy is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And when you find your joy in Christ, what's going on out here, we may not like it, it may be hard, we may need to process it, but we certainly don't need to grumble and complain about it. Because our God is good. Next, in verse 16, he says, Holding fast to the word of life. This is how you're to be light in the word world. Hold, hold to the word to be light in the world. Hold to God's word. I have, I'll tell you, I have nothing to offer you, church. My opinions don't matter. I have little to say. There's nothing about me. All I've got is this, God's word. That's all we got to offer. And when we go out to the world, we say, the Lord loves you. Here's what he says. Here's how he says you're to live. Don't live in bondage and slavery to sin. Live in freedom. And he's called you to obey him, love him. And Paul says at the end of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's great pride and great joy is when those he's invested in stay faithful. He loves the church in Philippi. Church in Philippi, don't be caught in grumbling and complaining. It's destructive. You see, the third group that's impacted by our grumbling and complaining are our spiritual leaders. People who have discipled us. People who have invested in us. People who have shared the gospel with us. People who have taught us. Parents, grandparents, pastors, youth ministers. Whenever we grumble and complain, it impacts those who love us and have invested in us. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's great joy, his great pride is to see the church continue to be faithful. See, this is what a wasted life looks like. God's told us this world is broken. Why do we need to go and complain about it all the time? We know it's broken. But God is good. God is gracious. We're not to be grumblers and complainers. Don't waste your life. Don't go through life just grumbling and complaining all the time. We deal with things another way. We turn to Christ and we give thanks. All right, see, I want to tell you, you this is a wonderful place to serve. No church is perfect. But may we never be a grumbling and complaining church. I haven't seen that in this place. But may that never be true of us. And may that never be true of you. I want to encourage each person. Encourage you in the name of Christ. Encourage you by His power and grace. Encourage you because you love Him. Encourage you because it's for your own good. To be honest with yourself. The hardest person in this room to be honest with is yourself. Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Don't compare yourself to everybody else. When they grumble and complain more, I do less. Stop doing that. What does this look like in your life? Is there something you need to repent of? Repent means you own your sin. You go, I have sinned. I've been a grumbler and complainer. And here's where I've done it. God, I confess it and I run back to Jesus. And I give you thanks that I can come back to you. I want freedom from it. I want us to taste freedom from it, church. May we walk in freedom that comes from Christ. Some of us may need to repent. I've had to ask myself that this all week. 
As I've went through this verse, God, where am I grumbling? Where am I complaining? And I've had to confess to him. I'm not looking at everybody else's grumbling and complaining, going, they do more, they do less. No, God, me. How am I contributing? And some of you may be here today and you have no power over your grumbling and complaining other than human willpower because you haven't trusted in Christ. I would invite you. Jesus is great and glorious. He gives us freedom from sin and the power to live life in the fullness of joy that he gives us. I pray that we would all live that way. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. It's true, it's good, it's gracious. I pray that your word would do the work it's supposed to do. If there's anything I've done to get in the way of your word, please remove it. But let your word work effectively. Lord, may we all be willing to submit to your word and to be honest with ourselves and repent in the areas we need repentance. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.